including my wife, who's always the last one chit-chatting. Uh, my name is John Yeager, and my wife and I, Brittany, were a part of this church for three years before we moved to New Haven, Connecticut, where I work with an organization called Christian Union that uh, you could say simply is discipling students on Yale's campus, uh, training them, um, helping them see how their faith bleeds into all aspects of life and their leadership and whatever vocation God calls them into. Uh, So it's been a joy to be there, but it's been a joy to be a part of this church and have it a part of our history and to always come back and to see you guys. So it's my joy to be here this morning. So let me pray and then we can jump in. Father in heaven, thank you so much for who you are and what you create. Lord, you are a good God who creates good things. And you have clearly created this community of people. But God, we confess, we struggle. Lord, the weak beats us up, and our faith is weak. God, we are weak. And we need you, O Lord, to rise up our faith from just crawling in the dust. And so we pray now by the power of your Spirit that you would grant us more faith, eyes to see, ears to hear, your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. We love you and we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. So many of you saw us welcome our daughter into this world, Ellie, about two and a half years ago. And it was soon after her birth, about three or four months, that we moved to New Haven. Um, And if you're a parent in this room, you probably remember your first trip to the ER for your child, right? Those things always stick with you. And we will definitely not forget our first trip with Ellie because it was two trips within a span of about two months, kind of back-to-back ER trips for Ellie. And they were both for the same reason. She ended up having a seizure due to a high fever, basically a dramatic um, kind of explosion of her fever in her body in which her body could not handle it and therefore went into a seizure. And this happened twice. And you can only imagine, with the first go-around with it, how freaked out Brittany and I were. We had no sign of this coming about. We had no clue what was happening when it was happening. She, all of a sudden, within five minutes, said she was not feeling good, and then boom, eyes rolled back, stiffness, sporadicness, out. We laid her on the ground, not knowing what to really do, and I distinctly remember sitting there, laying on the floor with her, um, putting my hand on her back, just to make sure her lungs were still moving. Because you couldn't tell. Um, One of the aspects of a seizure that we didn't know anything about was that even the lungs are seizing. And so they're stiff. um, And they're constricted. And they're, in a way, restricting the airflow that your lungs normally create throughout your whole body. And so the seizure lasted about a minute, a minute and a half. And her lungs this whole time, only able to take very small, shallow breaths. And it was evident, as Brittany and I sat there praying for her, 
waiting for the ambulance to come. She's turning more pale, even getting blue. It was clear something was wrong. Something was not right. Her faint, shallow breasts were not enough. And we were terrified. In a way, the biblical narrative, the story throughout Scripture, is saying that this very world that we live in, our very lives that we operate, in a way are like Ellie's seizures with her lungs. The cosmic world and our individual lives in it, you could say, is like lungs that are seizing. We have breath, right? We're all getting along. We woke up this morning. But yet, at the same time, this world and our lives in it only create an opportunity for very shallow, short breaths. Nothing very big and life-giving, but very much restricting that the life-giving breath that we need in this world. Lungs that are caught in a great tension, you could say, is what the scriptures are saying about our world and our lives in it. So the, the world, again, can only operate on short and shallow breaths. And for those watching on, like Brittany and I in Ellie's situation, right? The, it's evident, it's clear that something's not right. This is not our daughter. And in that first moment, there were times where we thought this could be it, and we were saying goodbye to her. And thankfully, she's okay, and you know, after the second one, it was repeated, but we don't think, and the doctors don't think this will plague her life. Um, but we clearly saw something was wrong. But when you're in the world, you don't always know that there's something wrong. Like Ellie, in her situation. She clearly did not know what was going on. In a way, paralyzed by the situation. And so, all of us in this world, in our lives, very much become paralyzed by the situation. And at best, you know, we get used to it, and we normalize the way the world is, and we recognize it, but we don't know what to quite do with it. Or maybe at worst, we start to think, well, maybe if we run far away from the marks of danger and death itself, and kind of just protect ourselves as much as possible, uh, maybe this slice of the world, we can create a moment in time in which this is just no longer the case. And this is what the Bible calls as the powerful and deceptive reign of sin and death over this world. That begins at the fall in Genesis 3, and then colors the whole context of the rest of the story of Scripture until the end. And so we see in Genesis 3, the fall, we see Adam and Eve taking and eating, right, from the tree. And in this taking and eating, what ultimately is going on is rebellion, but bigger than that is an abdication, a giving up of their role, of their purpose, to reflect God to the rest of creation, giving it up, and therefore being coming under another reign, therefore being formed and shaped by another sin. And we, 
throughout the story see, and as we'll see today, we also take and eat. We also abdicate. We also give up all that we were created for and are stuck in this cosmic mess with the rest of the world and are shaped by it. So this is the sermon that Matt Cruz and Matt Moran give me to preach. Um, I give them my thanks. Um, no, it is, it is a tough thing to come to grasp, but yet, as we hopefully will see, the Christian story, the truth of Christianity, points to something way greater than our current situation. But we've got to know our current situation. So this is what we're going to do today. Matt already read the passage, so I won't go back through it in Genesis 3, but we clearly see in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve taking and eating. And this taking and eating is clearly rebellion. That's obvious. But why is it rebellious? What was their motive behind it? It's interesting because Satan, in that uh, depiction of the serpent in Genesis 3, kind of tempts them with the language of, you'll become like God, which really is not the heart of their rebellion. Because if you remember, the important narrative of Genesis 1 and 2, God creates mankind to be in his image, to be like him, to represent him to the rest of the created order that was good, to reflect him. This was humanity's vocation and purpose and calling and great dignity in all creation. They were to steward it, to work it, to keep it, to fill it, to have dominion over it, to rule over it on behalf of the Creator. And this is what's called the image of God and mankind. And so, this is what their calling was. And like serving underneath a creator, you could say they had relative lordship. You could say humanity was called to be the kings and queens of all creation, under the creator God, reflecting all that he was. Great dignity. And this command not to eat of the tree, you could say is similar. Imagine with me, if you're going to the Boston Museum of Science with your kids, and if you don't have kids, with your nephew and nieces, or if you don't have those, with my daughter. And you're going to the Boston Museum of Science, and everyone's excited, the kids are excited about the museum, and you're excited about wearing them out so they take a good nap. And you're going there, and you get there, but you still have to cross this extremely busy street before you get to the Boston Museum of Science. You see it, it's right across the street. You're happy, you're excited, but you still get to cross that busy street. And you tell the kids, stop. Don't cross that street right here or right now. Let's walk down to the intersection where the crosswalk is and let's wait until the blinking light comes on, you can walk. And the traffic is stopped and we walk over into the enjoyment of all the goodness that the Boston Museum of Science is for children and some adults. Um, So it's that manner of God telling mankind All this is good and beautiful, and I want you to enjoy all of it. But yet, there is a rhythm, there is an order to it that is good. And mankind operating in that order 
reflecting God's good intentions for all creation is good. And to stop and to walk in his ways and to cross the road when it is the right time is good. And we see the opposite going on here. We see Adam and Eve taking and eating with their own sovereign desires in mind. You could say their desires and their own image in themselves becomes the primary, supreme, ultimate uh, thing that they grasp. And God and his likeness and his glory and his goodness is just pulled back to the background. Adam and Eve's and their desires to the foreground. God and his desires to the background. They are, in a way, becoming their own Lord without being under the Creator God. They are delighting in themselves rather than delighting in God. In a way, it's very similar to the slogan of Burger King, right? Have it your way. Very simple, makes sense for a burger place. But what they are saying Right? is that when you come to Burger King, the king of the burgers, to be king of the burgers is to have it your own way. Your desires come to the forefront. And anything of relative importance, like the 2 p.m. food coma that will come after eating a burger and fries from Burger King, is just pushed to the background. Your desires to the foreground. Your desires sovereign above anything else. Adam and Eve were going to Burger King to have it their own way. They listened to the serpent, choosing to grasp after becoming like God in their own way, rather than living and working and enjoying God and his good creation. And ironically, we see, and we're going to see very quickly, that this taking and eating is ironically giving up their lordship their role to be stewards of all that God created. They think they're grasping, they're becoming sovereign, you know, autonomous figures in this world. They think they're grasping after what, they is, what is ultimately good for them. But ironically, they're submitting now. They're being subjected to another, a created thing, and not God. They take, they eat, and they abdicate. Another reigns over them, and now... They'll be formed and shaped by another and not by all that God is. This is the significant implication of their taking and eating. Their taking and eating results in the reign of sin. And death was the necessary uh, end of this. If you think about it, they are turning from the living God, the source of all life, and worshiping and delighting themselves in something else that is not the source of all life. And so, like Ellie's lungs in her seizure, the necessary airflow, oxygen levels needed for life to thrive in all of good's purposes is cut off. And it's just short and shallow breaths that with time will only end in death. Sin's reign creates a cosmic mess. A massive mess that goes way beyond Adam and Eve's particular situation. We see this so quickly in the story of Genesis. Just in the very next chapter, 
we have Adam and Eve's two sons, Cain and Abel, come onto the scene. And Cain gets frustrated with Abel, and there's already this strife and enmity between mankind uh, and anger in their situation. So already you see some of the downward spiral that Adam and Eve taking and eating is already bleeding into the rest of creation. And then we see this situation where God confronts Cain and says, Cain, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you. You must rule over it. There's that language once again that we saw in Genesis 1. Mankind must operate in their role, reflecting all that God is, by stewarding creation. And here in Cain's situation, with the presence of evil there and sin there, he's got to rule over it. That's his calling. That's his vocation in the image of God. What do we see happen? In the very next verse, Cain pursues his brother Abel and kills him. I don't quite think he ruled over sin in that moment. It was a bloody failure. And already, I mean, think about this. Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve's sons, murder in the family already. Chapter 4, here we go. Not looking good. And right after that, in chapter 6, before the flood scene, we see God looking out at creation and saying this, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of his thoughts and hearts was only evil, continually. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. Listen to the wording here. And the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. Do you hear the echoes from Genesis 1? Genesis 1, God saw the earth and it was good. And it was good and good and good and good. He called mankind to fill and subdue the earth. Steward it. And here now, Genesis chapter 6, just three chapters after the fall, we see God looking at the earth and behold, it is corrupt. And it is filled, not with his goodness, not with mankind representing him, but with violence. Things have taken a turn for the worse. And Adam and Eve's taking and eating has bled through their sons and bled through the whole cosmic world, where God now looks down on it, and it is not good. This is the cosmic mess created by the reign of sin. And you quickly see here that the reign of sin is therefore anti-creation. It's anti-God. It's anti-humanity. It's anti-you. Sin does not care for you. Sin wants to seek and destroy you. It wants to fill you with violence against yourself, against your brother and sister, against all of creation, against the ground itself. And we clearly see this happening in Genesis. The cosmic mess is not the way it's supposed to be. It's not Genesis 1 anymore. And it is not a good situation. 
for all of creation and for you. But is this our situation? When we look and hear those words, every intention, the whole earth was filled with violence, are we really that bad off? Has the reign of sin really come over you and your life and our land in such a way? It seems like we've, we're maybe keeping the reign of sin at bay, right? It's not that bad. Clearly, we've learned a little bit. Uh, yeah, maybe, maybe the Middle East. That's a cosmic mess. Islamic states. That's filled with violence. But us? I'm not about to go kill my brother. Maybe the American pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness is working. This is the danger of our modern American culture. One that could be summed up with a word called progressivism. This idea that only a little bit more knowledge, only a little bit more understanding of the world, only a little bit more um, education and the sciences and politics, only a little bit more democracy, only a little bit more progress, economic growth, safety, health. Just maybe, just maybe, if we just keep progressing forward with what we've started, we've seen some progress, if we keep going, just maybe down in the distance, death itself will just kind of slide off the map and will be no longer. This is why Stanley Hauerwas, a wonderful theologian and Christian and teacher at Duke University, says this, our culture, talking about the American culture, is based off the premise, the idea, that we can make it out of life alive. Right? It doesn't make sense, but it's true. We operate life as if we can make it out of this life alive. And he is clearly saying it in a way that will get your attention, and Americans don't go around saying that. But the way we operate, it's true. And that is the clear danger, because the Scriptures do not say that one bit. The Scriptures say something quite different. The reign of sin causes the line of good and evil to run not through borders, not through regions, but through each and every single one of us. There is no moral high ground. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Crash. I think it was like 2003 uh, movie, so it's, it's been a little bit. But, so I'm not ruining it for you. It's your own fault if you haven't seen it. Um, yeah, it's a movie called Crash. It's, in a, it's intense, right? I give you that warning. It's intense. Uh, it's rated R for a reason, so if you don't want to see an intense movie, don't watch it. But it is wonderfully written. And actually, you could say in an odd way, very Christian because it depicts from the very beginning to the very end two car scenes that you would think crash, right? There's an accident. And in these accidents of these two cars crashing together, the people in the cars who are of different races and usually different economic backgrounds come at each other, right? With a certain violence in them, with a certain prejudice against the other person and their race and their status. And then everything in between in this movie, from the beginning car wreck to the last car wreck, displays this happening across all races, across all economic classes, across all educated and uneducated borders, 
in L.A. This is all happening. The context is L.A. And essentially what the movie is saying is that every single human being in this world is in this mess and entanglement of inward violence and prejudice, and you could say even racism, within all of us. And somehow with the right situations placed out there, it's going to collide and come out. The line between good and evil runs through each and every single one of us. And Crash, as a movie, depicts this really well. My question for you and for you to think about is have you fallen prey to this American progressivism, this Western, you could say even, progress of humanity? And it's hard to tell. We're terrible judges of ourselves in most parts of life. And this one is very true. So a couple questions I want to ask you and for you to think about to kind of test yourself about this. When you hear or see on the news what the Islamic State is doing in the Middle East and the violence that they are causing in the Middle East, and specifically, I may note, against Christianity, I mean, Christians are dying every day in the Middle East. Churches are being completely wiped out. When you hear what the Islamic State is doing, what's your typical response? How do you typically, just in the moment, respond? Do you think that what they are doing is pure evil, which I think most of us would agree, but that you are glad that you live in a different part of the world? A different part of the world that seems to be overall better than the Middle East. That seems to have gotten things under control than the Middle East. Do you think that such a violent group has, has arisen without any of our doing? That we have the moral high ground and that anything that happens outside is clearly something that is not our fault. Now, I'm not saying that, I'm not making any kind of political claim here, but it's an understanding that, listen, what's happening around the world is in one big cosmic mess. And we, as Americans, we, as even Christians, are a part of this cosmic mess. There is no slice of the earth in which we have some moral high ground to stand from. There is no position in which evil does not have its way with us. Now, another question, and this one hits a little bit different of a vein. When you hear about the kind of crisis of what could be called as modern slavery or sex trafficking and the amount of women around the world who are being exploited for their bodies, when you hear about this going on, and a large part of it goes on outside the U.S., and in other parts of the world. When you hear about that, how do you respond? Do you think to yourself, well, at least here in these United States, we have opportunities for women, equal rights. Life is pretty good for women, which is great, and yes and amen. But do you not think about how our pornographic industry in these United States is the thing that fuels the flame for such exploitation happening across the world. 
And do you not think that maybe, which there's wonderful grace for this, and wonderful humility to be offered here, that your lustful desires that sometimes lead you, or maybe often since your childhood, lead you to porn has any connection to all the women across the world being exploited right now for their bodies. It's deeply connected. And it's only the trick of sin and the deception of sin to think that your sin is just your sin and has no dealings with the rest of the world. The scripture narrative says something quite different. We all take and eat. We all have abdicated, have given up our role to reflect who God is to the rest of this world. And we are all stuck in this cosmic mess. And this cosmic mess shapes us. It has its way with us. It forms us. So that's not too hope-filled. So is there any hope, right? Well, of course, there's Jesus, whom we always point to. But why? Why do we point to Jesus as our hope? Why can he do anything about this cosmic mess and this reign of sin over all creation? That is why Matt read from Luke, and I want to very shortly and quickly read a couple verses from, again, the Gospel of Luke, in which Jesus has been brought up, has been baptized, whom God from heaven speaks in that moment of his baptism. And what does he say? He says, ah, this is pleasing. This is good. He's looking down once again, like creation, and declaring, this is good. And as Jesus steps out from his baptism, he's sent into the wilderness, which marks Israel's journey as well. But also his temptation that Satan himself gives Jesus has a lot of connotations with the fall in Genesis 3. Listen to this. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to Jesus, To you, Jesus, I will give all this authority and their glory. For it has been delivered to me. This is Satan talking. It has been delivered over to me. Their authority and their glory is mine. And I give it to whom I will. And I'm willing to give it to you, Jesus. How can Satan say such a thing? We've given it to him. That's the story of the fall. We've said, yep, we'll listen to you. And we'll drop our role as image bearers of God to steward all creation. We'll hand it over to you. And he says, Satan, to Jesus, I'll give it to you if you then will worship me. It will be all yours. Huh, well, if Jesus wants some authority, then he'll take it, right? It's a little logical. If he wants it, he can have it. He's just got to change his worship. And does Jesus take and eat? Does he say, ah, yes, my desire above anything else, I'll take and I'll eat of this offer? No, he doesn't, right? He says, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And the rest of the gospel narrative is what? Jesus taking the long road of obedience, the long road of suffering, by denying this offer, by denying to take and to eat for his own desire, 
He takes the long road of suffering that ends on the cross where cosmic evil in all of its forms is crashing down upon him. And he does not abdicate at any point. He does not give up being the son of God. He does not give up being what is now the invisible image of God. Because all of us have given up. But Christ himself becomes the image of the invisible God. We now have on display what humanity was always meant to be. We have now on display what God's intention was for humanity in creation. Not to take some silly, short-sighted embrace of some relative authority and, and rule and glory. Not to have some little pleasure that would last for a lifetime. Something much greater. And because of the reign of sin, this Denial from Jesus leads his life into great oppression and suffering and ultimately death. And yet, he still does not hand it over, so to speak, abdicate. But he suffers and he dies. And in that moment, death itself, sin and its reign is broken. Because he did not hand it over. He did not take and eat. And this is exactly why his resurrection is now the only slice of all creation that has been made right. And that is why it's our hope. We only have one piece of creation that's been made perfectly right. And that's the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And that is why we look to him. Because he, in his death and in his resurrection, now calls all of us to take and eat of him, to take and eat of his life, to take and eat of his death, to take and eat of his resurrection. And that is why there is great hope. Because through Christ and what he accomplished, now there is the hope of new creation. That through his resurrected life, all things are going to be made new for those who are taking and eating of him are embracing his life. And in embracing him, in taking and eating of him and his life, death, and resurrection, we start to see that new life happen now. We get to have these moments in which the living God, through the work of the Spirit, works in us, changing now our desires, transforming us, as Paul will say, one degree of glory to the next. And so this is why every single Sunday we serve communion. This is why we come every single Sunday and you get out of your chairs and you walk down here and you take and eat and drink and remember and celebrate and renew your faith in Christ in all that he accomplished in his life breaking this cosmic reign that certainly is over your life. But yet, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, and all the other rhythms that the church does and the community itself comes together and says, yeah, our hope, our life, seizure-free, if you will, is in Christ and in Christ alone. And we choose now, today, to take and eat of him and not sin and not what this world and its reign 
has to offer. So I ask you, as you come and as you take and eat today, get excited and ask through this meal that God would increase your faith, that God, through this meal and through the other people around you, would remind you once again that the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ is the one who's going to make all things new and is the one who is working now in your life and in this church and in this city and on this plot of land that we find ourselves. Take and eat of him. Renew your faith in him. I want to close by praying a prayer of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So pray with me. Lord Jesus, come yourself and dwell with us. Be human as we are and overcome what overwhelms us. Come into the midst of my evil. Come close to my unfaithfulness. Share my sin, which I hate and which I cannot leave. Be my brother, thou holy God. Be my brother in the kingdom of evil and suffering and death. And Lord, I add to that prayer, in our faith now that we have, increase it all the more as we take and eat of the Lord Jesus Christ. Transform us all the more, we pray, Lord. Through Christ our Lord and Savior, we pray these things. Amen.